Our teaching text today comes from the book of Job, chapter 19, um, two sets of verses, 9 through 21 and 25 to 27, and it is found on page 480 of the Blue Shed Bible. So I'll give you a chance to find it and you can follow along. This is Job speaking. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as, a, as on a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God, I, I think. We'll see where this goes. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Tim, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and it's, I count it a great privilege. And if you've lived through the era of mixtapes, or even if you're young like my children, and you got like a Spotify that just kind of goes from one song to another, usually it's within the same genre. And that's why we're going through this Old Testament series, the Mars Hill mixtape of the Old, Old Testament. But you may have had the experience like me where you're driving and a friend puts in a burned CD, if you remember those, and you're like, oh, I'm tracking with these songs. They got a good vibe, a good jam. And then something kind of comes out of left field, right? Like that time, like Tim McGraw and Nelly tried to do something together, right? It's like pineapple pizza, just kind of, I don't know, it's not my thing, right? Or when Hootie started singing country, like, yeah, okay. Um, or maybe you're into the classicals. And you're just like, I love some classical music. I got my Bach, Brahms, Beethoven. Who, yes, I love it. Yes, Billy. And right, you got these guys. And then all of a sudden goes Backstreet Boys, which they're basically the same, right? Just like two or 300 years different. But you, you get the feeling that sometimes the music you're listening to can take like a hard left turn. And I think that's what we get in the book of Job a little bit. Now, it's this particular book that is unique and confounding and it is wonderful. But it is a 
change of pace from where we've been and maybe where we're going in terms of where it fits in the literature of the Old Testament. Most people come to the book of Job, or at least have it in their mind, as the place we go to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Where does, why is evil what it is? What about unexplained pain and my deep questions? And I'm not totally sure this is the place that gives us the answer to that. But we'll look into that a little bit more in a bit. You see, questions like this, like why do bad things happen to good people? Where's God when things hurt are part of something I want to call equational thinking. We all have this, right? If I do A and B, then the answer must be C, right? If I study and listen in class, I get good grades. Yes? Okay, hopefully. We're tracking with some of this. We know this. We, we think often if we eat well and exercise, we will be blessed with long life. And this, this conventional wisdom is even backed up in parts of Scripture in a really great way, right? The book of Proverbs. Anybody read one of these? Yep. My mom told me there's one for each day of the month, and so just read your daily proverb. Uh, I've, you know, it's stuck with me for many, many years. Um, where we hear that if you are wise then life will go well for you. If you are patient and prudent, then peace and wealth will come to you. And this equational thinking, explanatory thinking, A plus B equals C, it works most of the time until it doesn't work. And we know this, that sometimes these things don't work out. And this is where the book of Job comes in. Maybe not as answer, but as helpful scaffolding for us because things don't always work like that. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says, Job is an intense and direct challenge to explanatory literature. That this book that we're about to encounter together challenges the book that comes a few Job's not two after it in Proverbs, right? That things don't always work out that way, and it's not that simple. And yes, it is intense as well. So, if we're willing to participate in the text, I think it's one of the questions we're looking at in this Old Testament series, that it's an invitation to our participation, that we look at with curiosity then I think there's actually something in this book for us that may be more helpful than an answer. Now, there are many ways to look at the book of Job. I was telling uh, Bob back on slides this morning that it feels arrogant and foolish to try and tackle it in 25 minutes, maybe 27 if you're gracious. And they think that's true. And so this is one angle into the book of Job. It is a gem that can be turned and turned and turned. But here's one particular way that I think the Spirit might be inviting us to consider it as a tool. So, I will tell you that Job is not a book. Yes, we think of it as the book of Job, but it's not a book. It's not history. Job, the character 
may not have actually existed in real life as we think of him. Job is a drama. Job is a script to be enacted, to be played out. Job is a stage play in its language, in its structure, in its usage. Job is a show that is meant to give us scaffolding within with which to feel and to see ourselves in light of the world around us. So picture this. Lights are down. You're in the auditorium. People are sitting quietly. The papers and the pamphlets stop their shuffling as the light goes on center stage, but there's no actor there. And then the voice of the narrator speaks from the wings. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all people of the East. Now, whatever play you'd seen recently, the narrator does something like this. Even if it is simply King George coming out to tell you, please silence your cell phones and enjoy my play, right? In the beginning of Hamilton. This is setting us up to take something in, in the theater. And in the case of those of us who hold scripture in such high value, it is setting up something that we get to enter into somewhat playfully to say, how, how is this my story? Where would I be and where would I locate such and such characters? You see, as we look at this as a play, it gives us permission to play. Scripture is revered and wonderful, sacred, authoritative, God-breathed. And in this collection of texts, there are spaces where we are called to be a different type of participant, and I think Job is one of them. So if you're someone who maybe has a bad memory of mispronouncing a name in a Sunday school class and some clergy member or elder coming down on you for that, try and let that pass and say, let's make this story our own. Because this story is also timeless. As the intro tells us and shows us implicitly, it can be at any time or at any place. What I love about this intro, as I just read, we don't know when this happens. Most texts we get open with the narrator trying to say, this is actually when this happened, right? In the year King Uzziah died, or in the third day of the month of Nisan, whatever we get in these biblical reference points, this author has none of that. In fact, Uz may be almost like Oz, a land far away that may or may not exist in reality. All we know is that it is distant and far away. In this great literature, sets the stage for us as a timeless piece that gets revisited and also recontextualized. Ask a bunch of scholars, and they'll tell you, some will tell you, Job is probably the oldest book 
Oh, you know, actually, Job is probably pretty recent, probably right before we get the Gospels, and anywhere in between. And when I hold these things together, in light of it being a drama, I just, I think, yes. Because most likely, this book gets recontextualized again and again and again as part of Scripture. As the Psalms find their context in any place in which song is sung, this story pops up. Most likely um, that it happened, that it's been reinterpreted many times over. We get this, right? So take, take something like the American Revolution. In the last century, we've had about six hit movies or plays that revisit this in their own context or in their own time. Take this, 1939, I was told it was a box office hit, Drums Along the Mohawk. I don't know, it was a big movie. I wasn't around for it. But this interpreted the American Revolution in terms of a great foreign power in light of Nazi Germany rising. It answers the questions of the day. And then we go into the 1972, in which the play 1976 gets turned into a movie. It's also a box office hit. In 1985, Al Pacino is a Revolutionary War character in the movie Revolution. 2000, get The Patriot. Mel Gibson's probably mad at somebody, and we see it in this movie. And then 2016, right? We get the $10 founding father without a father, Alexander Hamilton, right? These plays, these stories, getting reused again and again, meeting the questions and the hopes and the wonderings and expectations of a particular time. And I think Job does this, whether it is written in the days of Moses and Abraham in the land of these foreign conflicts and maybe gets repurposed in the time of Egypt in the Exodus. Maybe Solomon revisits it and rewrites it in terms of some of the ways it's crafted in the wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes. And maybe it gets revisited and recontextualized again in the days of Babylon, when there are deep questions, when Israel is laid waste to. We can play with and in this story. Again, it opens Verse one through three, in a land far away, meaning could be anywhere, is what the author is trying to say. The author doesn't identify himself, herself, because most likely a collection of people over time saying there's something real here, pay attention and get into it. But we see this main character, Job, feared God and is blameless. Right off the bat, he's not an Israelite. He doesn't have a Hebrew name. Neither do any of his friends. Fascinating, transferable. But Job is this character, as it says in the end there, the greatest man among all the people of the East. The numbers of these animals are not meant to say he had an industrial feedlot in Nebraska. They're trying to say, he had everything. Don't even try and count it. Whatever you could think of, this dude had it. That's our character, and yet was blameless and upright. So let's get into the text. We'll have some of these things on the screen, uh, but feel free to follow along. I'm just going to encourage you to read Job later this week anyway. So if you want to listen, listen. This is the prologue that sets up the drama. This is verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And after the party, uh, period of feasting, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice burnt offerings for them, thinking perhaps my children might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom, making a way for his children, being ultra careful not to do anything wrong. And then one day, this is where it gets weirder, verse six, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Uh, the Lord then said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth on it. Okay, Satan and the angels don't hang out a lot. In fact, in its Hebrew context, Satan as a concept, as we think of it in recent Greek thought as a being, is not what this is talking about necessarily. Satan is a, is a role that would be played. The accuser, the persecutor, is what we would read this in the early Hebrew context. There's, there's something that's about to happen. There's a role that's being played. And the Lord said to Satan, the persecutor, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you put a hedge around him and protected him? But now, let's stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to his face. So we have this strange left-turn scene of God and this spiritual accuser and angels talking about people as if they're chess pieces and pawns to play with. If you're sensing this doesn't resonate with much of what we know of God in Scripture, you're right. And if you're sensing it resonates with some of the ways that we tend to think of God when we're in pain or stressed out or distant, you're right. This is how the play sets up. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and one day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking with wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them, and they put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell the story. And still, while he was telling Job about this, another servant came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another servant came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another servant came and your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house and suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who is here to tell you. Everything is taken away from Job very quickly. All that had once made him is gone. And at this, this is verse 20, Job got up and he tore his robe and shaved his head, fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away and may the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So ends the prologue of the play. We get the main character in the deepest of pain, 
the loss of not only possessions and people he cared about, but his children are gone, the lowest of low. And scripture makes a place for us to sit in this. And then Job is joined by three friends. There'll be a fourth that comes later in the book. His friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I'm gonna avoid the short man joke of Bildad the shoe height. He's slightly under Nehemiah. Thank you, thank you. We need a little levity, right? This is, this is a tough book, it's a tough book. So these friends come to be with Job in his pain. They do this thing where they sit for seven days and seven nights to comfort him. And when they saw him, this is verse 12, from a distance, they could hardly recognize him and they began to weep out loud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their foreheads and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. We get a model of what the Jewish community has held as sitting Shiva or Shiva with somebody to be with them in the pain and in the silence, not offering explanation or platitude, but simply to be with them. And this is a role that is open to us and let's take it with one another. To be with each other in the pain. And so they do this for seven days and seven nights and then it is Job Chapter three, who speaks first. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived, may it turn to darkness. So here he is with his friends in the midst of this terrible tragedy. I love this particular uh, picture. It's a 19th century Ukrainian artist who puts this in amazing historical context. You can see uh, that the friends are not Jewish. And yet we have these virtues bestowed upon them, much like we get uh, the Good Samaritan. And you see them on the ground Next to him, one tearing his robes, the other appearing to weep with their friend. And we also get this character in the background, Job's wife, who often gets a harsh note because she says to Job, curse God and die. And we think of her as as so dysfunctional and discouraging, and yet she says almost, almost where Job goes to, and her children have all just died. Presumably because of Job's goodness. So let's have some compassion on her as a character as well. So here they sit, and the majority of the book, which follows here, chapter 4, 3, 4, and onward through 38, is dialogue between the friends and Job back and forth, as if the wisdom of the ages, which may be what these three men are saying, uh, uh, representing, is trying to figure out how this could happen. What has Job done? Just like those around the crippled man in the New Testament. Who sinned? 
right? Because our equational thinking is messed up. Because A plus B needs to equal C. What did you do wrong? That's the only way this can be explained. Because they're asking the same question we are. What and why did this happen to me? And they go so many chapters without an answer, as if the play is trying to tell us that it is long and circular, this argument of trying to figure out why. And then we get to our teaching text, with, which Lori read for us, where he just seems to be at the lowest of low in Job 19. My close friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I've escaped with nothing but my life. It's as if we as readers, hearers, receivers of the drama are able to say, I, I may have been almost there. There's ample space laid for us to enter and say, I, I too have been in the depths of confusion and pain. And right as it reaches its crescendo in 19, we have this little bit of a flip where the text says in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin, all I have left, has been destroyed, then my flesh will see God. My inner being will see the Lord. I will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. And friends, if you have been in the place of confusion and darkness and anger, you know that this isn't an immediate turn towards everything being solved. I know that my Redeemer lives may be hopeful, but it also compounds the problem of what he's actually feeling. That in the depths, I know that my Redeemer lives, so how is this the case? It's as if this part of the text is offering us a place to to place all of our wonderings and confounding, crippling thoughts and doubts where there is great tension, even greater because of the faith we hold and the one we have faith in. How can you be working for good in this? How does this pain or loss or death square with your character, God? Where are you in my addiction, in my job search, in my career downturn, in my loneliness, in my search for meaning or answers, or in my broken family? Where are you? I know that you live, and that feels all the more frustrating right now. And the text sits at this low point where Job on the ground with open sores, representing the openness and rawness of all that's gone wrong in his life, is in the depths of humiliation. And the message, I think, to us who encounter this book is it belongs. These questions, this anger, it belongs. I remember a youth pastor when I was like 17 was like, have you, did you ever swear at God? And I was like, yeah, kind of, I felt bad about it. As if giving permission to say that our words, our anger, our confusion have a space before the Lord. And if we fast forward to the end of the book, when God is speaking directly, he 
tells Job that you were right to come to me with your struggle and your authenticity. It belongs. And so we are not a community that shuns that kind of honesty. As best we can, we walk with each other. We sit in silence and wondering and prayer with one another. It's part of why we design these spaces and people who get to pray with you during communion. Maybe it's just need presence with you to sit in that place. It belongs here too. We don't always do the best with it, but we are able to bring this to one another, to God. Eventually, God speaks. This is chapter 38. Another friend comes and visits Job. He offers a few suggestions, maybe a little bit different perspective, but it still doesn't answer the question, why? So the poetry and the dialogue continues, and then the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm in 38. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Who are you to speak? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you obviously understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On who set it on its footings and laid the cornerstone of this earth? Surely you know, Job, you're acting like you do. Now, if this sounds more like a dysfunctional parent figure to you than the God we continue to encounter through scripture, you're right. This drama is telling us something. That God has every right to speak and critique us. This is true. And it's showing us something. Through God's wonderings and musings and questions and telling Job all of how the earth was, all the details and the complexity of the earth is held together and made in these amazing beings with which God seems to delight in the behemoth and the Leviathan, all these amazing things that God holds together that are beyond our wonder, beyond our wildest dreams. What it is meant to do is put Job in a place of humility to remind him of his posture to take with God. And again, God also says he did not do anything wrong. And so this brings us another layer of complexity and wonder at the God who doesn't, at least in my prayer life, come at me with these questions when I bear my soul to the Lord. So it leaves us wondering what in the world is happening in this text. God is describing a world in all its wonder that reminds us that it's complex, it's beautiful, and it's not safe, that it is all not tamed yet, that these creatures, these these. These beasts that he speaks of 
remind us of the danger and chaos of the world. And yet God seems to hold them. And so even in this kind of gigantic rendering of all creation in the cosmos, God is saying, I'm with you in the middle of that. And so at the end of the book, finally we get to verse four, or chapter 42, where there begins to see an epilogue and resolution. And I come to this as a great, please answer my question. Why did this happen to Job? Why did these things happen to us? And yet it begins with, I know that you can do all things, says Job to the Lord. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job in a place of surrender. Maybe you, like me, have been in a place where almost everything inside you wants to fight or to run or to just dig in your heels. And yet sometimes there's an invitation to surrender to what you know is right. Maybe that's losing the argument. Maybe that's surrendering to what you will not and cannot know, or to waiting, or to patience, or to forgiveness. And I think that's what Job models for us. Not winning, not getting the answer, but surrendering to what he cannot know be that then or in eternity, the posture of humility and surrender and trust is where we end this story. Not with an answer, but with a way of being in the world. At the end, we get an epilogue where God says to the friends of Job, hey, that wasn't cool. Job's going to pray for you now. And so Job does. And then God restores unto Job children and wealth and property and animals, not as a reward for his faithfulness. Remember, equational thinking breaks down in this text, but as a free gift that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, we find here. So we don't get our answer of why these things happen. But I think the angle for us this morning hinges on this being a play. It gives us a scaffolding and a script on which to reflect on our own lives as a tool, right? It gives us distance to name and see how we view God in the midst of questions and suffering. Let's take a look at this. This is a couple questions that I think this text invites us to answer or to wrestle with. In the midst of our pain, struggle, or confusion, where is God located? The obscure intro to this story shows God and Satan and angels far, far away. That's where I go in the midst of pain, that God must not know. God must be distant. So Job invites us to name, where do we, in, our, in the midst of our struggle, where is God located for us? Is God near, far? Emotionally near, far? What caused the trouble? Why is this happening? 
Why do we think it's happening? In this case, we kind of have this comical scaffolding as if God was playing a game. Is God doing this? Is Satan doing this? Is it chance? Who knows? But it pushes us to name where we think the problem is. Why do we think this is happening? It pushes us to ask, how is our community in this? How are we showing up for each other? Who's with me sitting in these questions? Am I sitting with other people in their pain and questions? And then finally, what narrative is this building about life and about God in the midst of this? There's no shortage of struggle, pain, confusion, or questions for us on our own life's journey. But what's the narrative that's being built behind it? Job offers us a scaffolding on which to ask these questions with some difference, so distance, to name and examine things in our lives. But not to stay there. It offers us a tool in the scriptures for this, a way to find ourselves in the story. But remember, we let scripture interpret scripture. The one who also grew up hearing the narrative of Job, someone named Jesus, right, enters the story a few books later in the text. And Jesus sits with people in their pain, and yet what he doesn't do, as he does almost all the rest of the books of the Bible, is quote Job in the same way that we tend to read it. He tells different stories. Instead of that particular drama, instead of retelling Job in light of the Roman occupation, which would have made sense for Jesus to do, it's what they did. Instead of that, he tells a different story. Stories to his disciples that push against the narratives that have been built about a distant God who plays chess with Satan on a board in which we are the pawns. He says, instead, the kingdom of God is like debts forgiven. It's like undeserved inheritance. Jesus tells new stories, new dramas, and fresh scripts about a God who so liberally scattered seeds as a farmer and blesses so many more. He tells stories like God is a vineyard owner who gave people far more than they worked for. God is a king who opens the party up to all the undesirables in the county. In this great reversal, God is a good and caring father. And in the ultimate twist of plot, Christ, who is God, enters our drama and upends all of the scripts. Job is so helpful in naming our pain before God and helping us figure out where we are, but then Jesus, as the one who interprets Job, that we see the lens through Jesus Christ, says, yes, you do not get what you deserve. And your characterization of God is too small. It is too distant. In fact, God in Christ comes to humanity to change their narratives of pain and distance. Christ takes on flesh, enters the story, and rewrites it. And so, yes, Job is an invitation for us to locate ourselves and God in our own narratives of pain and suffering and know that they belong. But we do not stay in Job, nor does it pretend to be the thing that presides over all of the Bible, but instead we take Jesus as the one 
who then restories us, who comes into the narrative and changes our presuppositions and our limitations on God. Because we would have A plus B equals C with God as well. And thank God that God does not do that with us and that Christ shows us a different way. And so that is why we come here after every time we crack open the scriptures to see and be nourished and to be fed and to be changed so that as we locate ourselves in the story, we don't have to stay at that location. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And let us pray. Lord, it's a right and good and joyful thing that in all places, at all times, we can give thanks to you for you are God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so we praise you no matter where we are in our story, in our journey, and we join our voices with all of creation and all of heaven who sing hymns to the glory of your name from wherever we are, where you are holy. And so Spirit, would you come and meet us in our places of confusion and pain and questioning and help us make sense with your presence and with your gifts and with your son Jesus Christ of what it means to live in the unresolved tension of why. Would you cut through the scripts that we hold and come to us afresh as healer, redeemer, sustainer, and provider? So Spirit, would you do that work not only in these elements that we bless, but in our hearts, in our stories, and in our community? Would you write us a fresh script in which you are the center? We ask this in Jesus' name. So it was this Jesus who sat with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed and he took the bread as they sat down and he broke it. So that out of what is broken, something may be made new. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten together, this Jesus takes the cup and he said, this is the new promise, the new covenant, the new script, which is written in my blood. Would you do this for the forgiveness of your sins? As often as you drink of it together in remembrance of me. And so we do. We have four tables around the room where you can come and take and eat and come and be served in the front. Space to pray, to name where is God, where is the reality of pain, put it in the prayer walls or to sit with somebody in silence or in prayer. We've got folks who would love to pray with you, the prayer name tags on, Paul and Brian or any of our pastoral staff if we're around. We'd love to pray with you and be in those places with you. So would you come and receive a new story? A story that brings life out of death where God is near to us.
we can receive life. In, in brief and in mystery, we recite this story here. Together, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come and receive who you are, the body of Christ.